I encourage you to take your Bibles and open them up to 1 Peter chapter 4. We know it is Christmas time, but we find ourselves still in the book of 1 Peter. And yes, we will be talking about more suffering here this morning. But the suffering this morning, we're going to hopefully put a joyful twist on. So I want to uh, go back, though, and just take a moment to remind us a little bit about the setting of First Peter. Peter is likely writing from Rome, somewhere around the year 62, 63 A.D. And at this time, Christian persecution is on the rise. And it wouldn't be very long at all before the Christian persecution will greatly accelerate. And so Peter is writing to encourage the churches that have been scattered about, and in a big way, to write to them about how to deal with suffering, how to deal with trials, how to deal with persecutions. I don't believe it had happened yet, but in 64 AD, the city of Rome burned. I think nearly two-thirds of the city burned. And the emperor at the time, Emperor Nero, had a problem. And the problem was there was a rumor going around that it was his fault, that he's the one who had set the fire. And so what we learn from a Roman historian whose name was Tacitus, what we learn is he started his own rumor that it was the Christians who were to blame. And as he unleashed his wrath on Christians, Tacitus writes in his journals, he was a historian, and I'm not going to read the whole passage here, but I'll just give you some highlights of Christian suffering that was only maybe a year or less away from when Peter wrote this letter. We know that Christians were made subjects of sport. They would be covered in hides of animals and then sent out to wild beasts. Think lions and tigers. They were nailed to crosses. They were lit on fire. When the day ended and the people still wanted to party and have their games, they would string up Christians and light them on fire as if they were streetlights. This was how Nero dealt with Christians. When we read these words, when we hear these stories, and you look at the atrocities that were happening, especially during these times, we would be rightfully horrified and sorrowful. We might naturally wonder, how could God let this happen? How could God let this happen to his people? Why? What possible reason would God let them suffer so severely? We hear about other tragic circumstances happening in our day around the globe. Horror stories of Christians and terrorists and persecution. And we wonder, where's God? How am I to respond? It's these kinds of circumstances that Peter had in mind when he pens this letter. Those who are facing abuse and rejection and humiliation, violence, even death. And I know that there are many of you in here that aren't worried about getting strung up, burned alive, and turned into a streetlight. 
But my guess is there are some of you who are dealing with your own struggles, your own trials, your own suffering, and you don't seem to quite understand why. Especially because you're a Christian. Why would God allow these things? And as you're wrestling through that thought, maybe you came to church two weeks ago. And if you were here two weeks ago, we opened up to the middle of 1 Peter chapter 3. Pastor Keith said, we are supposed to consider our suffering as a blessing. Like, I don't know, but sometimes that seems hard to hear. Suffering as a blessing. So hopefully you came back the next week, which was last week, and Pastor Keith helped us understand, well, how? How do I come to see suffering as a blessing? And he said, we have to change our thinking. And he's right, and we're going to continue that thought here this morning, because not only am I going to say that we should consider suffering blessings, but that we should rejoice in the midst of our suffering. That we should take joy even in the midst of trials. So I hope we'll dig in. It's eight verses. First Peter chapter four, verses twelve through nineteen. This is what Peter is saying. We are to rejoice when suffering comes. Let's pray before we begin. Dear Lord, help us in these next few moments to hear from you. Help us to consider your truth. Help us to take it to heart. And Lord, give us joy. Even when even when it seems hard, even when we don't understand. Help us cling to some of these truths so that we might have joy, even in the midst of suffering and trials. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So in eight verses, I'm going to look at five keys to suffering joyfully. The first key is found in verse 12. It connects with a sermon from last week, so we won't spend much time here. But it begins verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery, fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The first key to suffering joyfully is to guard your mind. Or you might say, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial is what Peter says. He reminds them of his love for them, that they are beloved, that he cares for them. He's writing with compassion and care. And he says, beloved, don't be surprised. Because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when the fiery trial will come upon you. Why shouldn't believers be surprised? Now, this isn't just a getting caught off guard for half a second. This idea is thinking about just being astonished and bewildered and questioning kind of surprise. Why shouldn't believers be surprised? When trials and sufferings come, well, there's many, many examples, but I'll give you just two. One from Jesus. Jesus said, get ready. Don't be surprised. Guard your mind. Prepare. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We need to be prepared. Don't be surprised when the world hates you because you're a Christian. Look at what Paul tells Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people, people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We should expect it. Prepare your mind now 
But don't lose sight of the purpose of these fiery trials. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. You see, Peter uses this phrase, fiery trial. And I don't think he's talking about how hot it gets or the pain that it can inflict or the damage that it can do. But what I think he has in mind is Proverbs 27, 21 that talks about a refining fire. He's suggesting that these sufferings are meant to purify and strengthen Christians. So don't be surprised, because if we're honest, we all know that we might have at least a little bit of refining for the Lord to do in our hearts and lives. And so the same principle is true for you and me. We are encouraged to see God's good purpose behind our difficulties. This in turn enables us to grow stronger in faith, to point others towards God, to His glory. But this is absolutely a battle of the mind. It's a choice that we make to view our circumstances in light of what God may be doing for us, not necessarily against us. And so we must guard our minds against the temptation to think that our suffering is pointless or that we are just victims of mere circumstance or to be caught off guard when life takes a sudden left turn. Peter ends this verse saying that we shouldn't think that suffering is some foreign or strange event, but actually suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. So in a large part, we talked about changing our thinking last week. And so we're going to just move right on to the next verse. If you need more tips and pointers for that, go back to the stream and listen to Pastor Keith last week. So the second key for suffering joyfully shows up in verse 13 and 14. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. The second key this morning is to guard your heart. You might say, don't be discouraged, but rejoice. There it is. Don't just expect it. Don't just be ready for it. But when it comes, rejoice. Well, why? Why do I have to rejoice when suffering comes? Peter gives us three reasons in these two verses. Number one, when we suffer, we participate or share in the suffering of Christ. Beginning in verse 3, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. There have been many who have suffered persecutions and tortures for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. This is a normal part of the Christian life. But notice that Peter says we share in the suffering of Christ. It's not that we just suffer for Christ, but that we are actually participating. This word uh, participate or share comes from uh, the same Greek word that we use to talk about fellowship. And community. And so suffering then helps believers identify with Christ, which is more than just suffering for Him. And so 
we learn that to be a disciple involves suffering like the master. What has happened to Jesus is now happening to this group of disciples and believers and will continue for the rest of history. But what does it mean to suffer with Christ? And why is that a cause of joy? Because when we suffer with Christ, our relationship grows deeper. We grow more bonded to Him. We understand Him better, His love, His care, His his compassion, and even His suffering and His trials. And as we see our sufferings as a way to engage and interact and identify with Christ, now I love Him more deeply. Now I, I want to know Him more deeply. Now I trust Him more completely. And the more we know of Christ, the more that joy takes over our heart. The more we understand that in suffering, we have the opportunity to know Christ, to understand Him, to participate in the sufferings that He suffered on my behalf. That changes my perspective. I'm now able to rejoice even in the midst of great pain. Not only do we share in the suffering of Christ, when we suffer, we look forward to sharing in the glory of Christ. The end of verse 13. That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. I think Peter is referencing Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice, And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter says, rejoice when suffering comes. But then he says, and be glad. When I first read that, I think glad is under rejoice. Like if there's a meter, like glad is here and rejoice is like here. It's actually the opposite. Never knew that till this week. Um, this idea, the, the phrase be, be glad here is really an overjoy, a superjoy, a, a give glory to. And so I think what Peter is getting at here is that, yes, you can rejoice now because you're getting to know Christ. You can rejoice in the suffering because it's getting you closer to Him. You're identifying with Him on a deeper level. And then that level of joy is going to be exponentially increased and be glad, increasingly more joy when Jesus returns. Because when Jesus returns, there's no more suffering. There's no more pain. And that's a reason to rejoice, to have Super joy. Looking forward to the day when our present joy is amplified in the presence of Christ, knowing that all things are going to be set right. It gives us confidence that God is at work in our lives. One more reason why we don't want to be discouraged. And instead rejoice. When we are insulted, 
we are reminded of the name and glory of Christ. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. There it is again. We're blessed when we're insulted. How does that work? Well, I think he's quoting Jesus again. One verse before the last, Matthew 5:11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Those are the words of Jesus. But why does Jesus say we're blessed? Why does Peter say we're blessed? Because it doesn't feel nice when someone insults me. It doesn't feel like I should rejoice when someone reviles me for the name of Christ. Why should we consider ourselves blessed in those situations? Because it means that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What he's saying is the very fact that they're using the name Christian in this case to revile you is proof that you are indeed a Christian. And if you're able to understand that and see that, that as they revile you for the name of Christ, that it's showing and revealing that Christ is actually in you, now it changes my perspective. It changes my attitude. It keeps my heart from turning bitter. It keeps my heart from retaliation. And it says, who am I that I might be counted as, as worthy of suffering for the name of Christ? He says that the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. It's meaningful, I think, that Peter declares that it's the spirit of glory who rests on believers. I think there's a contrast that he's showing. Suffering, trials, insults. What kind of environment is that? That's hectic. That's stressful. That's chaotic. That's a lot of things moving, a lot of questions, a lot of emotions. But he says, remember, you're blessed. The Spirit of God is in you. It rests on you. He's telling us at any moment, we can have joy in the midst of any of that because we can turn to the Spirit of God in the times of crisis, in the times of suffering and trial and chaos and not knowing where to turn. We turn to God's Spirit because He's the one who brings us peace. He's the one who gives us strength. He's the one who refreshes our hearts. Say, guard your heart, because this is just not some mind trick. Say, guard your heart, because that's the only place that joy comes from. You can't fake joy. You can fake a smile. You can fake being happy. We are guard our heart with these truths, so that true joy will reside in us. Next key. Guard your conscience. Don't be ashamed. Why would I be ashamed? Well, two reasons. Verse 15. First reason. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Short version, Peter says, Okay, but if you're going to suffer, make sure it's not your fault. Make sure that you actually don't deserve suffering. So if you claim to be a Christian and you go and murder someone and you get caught and put in jail, 
You're not suffering as a Christian. You're suffering because you committed a crime, you sinned, and now justice is taking its course. Same thing with a thief or an evildoer. It's just a broad category there. It means teens. You get a bad grade on your test because you didn't study. It's not because you're being persecuted because you're a Christian. If you're on the highway and you're speeding, even if you have a Jesus fish on your bumper sticker and the cop pulls you over and gives you a ticket, that is not Christian persecution. That is you broke the law and take the Jesus fish off your car, please. <laughs> Bad reputation. That's, you're getting what you owe, what you deserve. If you're rude to people and they're rude back, don't pretend it's because you're a Christian. Well, I would just tell them what the Bible said. Yeah, well, you weren't very nice about it. Well, this is just Christian persecution. No, it's not. It's you're being rude. The last thing he says is don't be a meddler. Guard your conscience. He's saying, if you know that it's your fault, don't try to blame Jesus or anybody else. And Peter didn't know what he was maybe, well, I'm sure he knew what he was talking about. What he didn't realize was this is a perfect word for social media today. Don't be a meddler. And, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves is, to be honest, uh, reading posts on, like, Twitter or Facebook or wherever you browse. You shouldn't. Um, and I see, like, professing Christians meddling, like giving people unsolicited advice that they don't even know what they're talking about, but they just have to meddle. They have to give their opinion. They need to tell this person what they think about this, 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 and the other. And in their bio, they're like, saved by grace, Jesus lover, Christian, and then when people respond back to them in not so nice of a manner, then all of a sudden it's Christian persecution. Oh, well, yeah, this is, what, this is my cross to bear. People just don't like Christians these days. Or maybe they don't like a meddler. Maybe they don't like someone who is talking about things they shouldn't be talking about on the Internet. Maybe, maybe it's your fault. And so Peter says, if you're going to suffer as a Christian, don't make it your fault. Don't blame Jesus for your own sin, your own meddling, your own sins. You can expect to pay the penalty for those things. There's nothing unjust about any of that. And so what he is saying, so he's saying guard your conscience, make sure that you're not to blame but if you're going to suffer, then make sure you're going to suffer for the right reason, which is your loyalty to God and your faithful following of Jesus. And that's why he says in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Legitimate suffering for Christ. It happens. It should be expected. 
We're going to guard our minds and be ready for that. We're going to guard our hearts knowing that if it comes, I'm not going to be discouraged. I'm going to know that God is at work. And then I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm not going to be ashamed of the name Christian because I'm standing up and doing what is right before my God. I'm going to not be ashamed when people revile me, when people insult me, when people tell me I'm dumb or stupid or fill in the blank because you're just a Christian. Okay, but my conscience is clear. Before my creator, my conscience is clear. And so he says, don't be ashamed, but instead let him glorify God in that name. In other words, he's saying, let people revile you. Let people insult you. You keep doing what's right. You keep showing God honor. You keep bringing honor to God's name by the way you live your life, by the way you respond to the people who are truly insulting you, who are truly persecuting you, who maybe are bringing some of the trials and suffering and conflict to your life. You're going to glorify God in that name, which is Christ, which is Christian. We're going to act with integrity so that our conscience is clear before the Lord, saying, if I have to endure suffering, let it be on them and let me consider it honor for the name of Jesus. There's no shame for suffering for the sake of Christ. But just make sure it's for the sake of Christ. Fourth key. Some of you may get nervous. Guard your theology. Don't be fooled. This comes from verse 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, you can go really into the weeds here, and we're not going to do that. But I want to give you what I think Peter is trying to communicate and where we need to guard our theology specifically in relation to these verses. Number one, judgment is coming. For it is time for judgment to begin. Like now, 63 AD, judgment. Judgment is coming. Now, notice, though, this word judgment is a legal, judicial term. So it's a decision made on evidence. God will reward. God will punish as he sees fit. But know that judgment is coming. And so when people are tempted to think, well, why are God's people suffering and evildoers are getting away with everything, going unpunished, this is where verse 12, in guarding our mind, comes back into play. We have to remember. We know our theology. Judgment is coming. But we should also see that judgment is coming for believers. But this judgment, this type of, verse 12, fiery trial, results in our purification. How do I know that? For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So this means, verse 12, fiery trial, yep, expect it, talking about believers. 
Household of God, talking about believers. Where does this phrase come from? Two prophets. You can write it down, look it up in your own later. Maybe. Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3. We're not going to get into the weeds. But Ezekiel 9 tells about how God sends his executioners to destroy idolaters in Jerusalem. Do you know where he starts? The temple. You know who dies first? Elders in the household of God. Because they had rejected God, turned to idolatry. Judgment came to the temple first. Malachi 3, so he's taking these two thoughts and putting them together. I'll read these two verses, although it's really like the first five of Malachi 3. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And listen to how Malachi describes the Lord as he comes in judgment to his temple. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, the priests, and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So you see this picture of judgment coming to his own people, but not as condemnation, but as a refiner who refines them. And what is the result? They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now, if you were to flip back your page and look at First Peter 2, 5 you see Peter making this same argument in same case. Well, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. 1 Peter 2.5 You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What happens next in Malachi is that he goes, after he has purified his people, he then goes and brings judgment on all the outsiders. And this is the exact same progression that we see Peter doing here in First Peter 4. Peter's point is, judgment is here. It's time to begin. It's going to start with the household of God. As it works, its work, which is to purify and to refine the people of God, why? First Peter 2, 5, so that they might offer sacrifices pleasing to the Lord. Then, what happens next? Well, Peter asked the question. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, well, what's going to be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so you're seeing this movement from the house of God now to those unbelievers. And now this same fire, the same judgment, the same trial that is God uses to now refine his people is now brought in judgment to the world, except they're without Christ. And how are they going to stand in the midst of God's fire? And the rhetorical answer is they're not. The result is condemnation the result is hell 
And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and a sinner? This is a quote from Proverbs 11.31. He's saying that if the fire of God's holiness and righteousness is so intense, is so refining that even his own people can feel the pain uh, of suffering as it works, then the ungodly and the sinner will find it to be a fire of eternal destruction. And I, I get it. This is, we're supposed to be talking about Christmas and baby Jesus and love and stuff. But don't lose sight. This is important theology and just, we're not going to skip it because it's December 4th. We're in First Peter and this is it, but there's hope here. There's great hope here. Judgment has purpose. It's refining us. It's doing a work in us. And if I keep my theology right about suffering, what should this result in? Praise the Lord. He's working in me. I can stand the fire because the Spirit of God rests on me. And He's not wanting my destruction. Therefore, Then therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he's using this to make me and mold me into who he has called me to be. The refining fire of judgment will leave no one untouched. But it is not without purpose. It will not be painless. But we can take heart knowing that there is an end. There's a goal. And ultimately, Romans 8, 18, 28, everything in between. Ultimately, it's for our ultimate good and the glory of God. But it's time to go. So one more. Guard your soul. We'll make it quick because it's simple. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We just read about all this intense judgment and fire and trials in 17 and 18. There may be some who want to then run, hide, give up, throw their hands in. Guard your soul. Don't sit back. If we understand that this is actually something that's working in us now, that should encourage me to lean in. To press in, to say, yes, God, I'm, I'm walking with you. I'm suffering with you. I'm getting to know you. I'm seeing joy being produced in my life. People have said, many people that I read this week, that this one verse, you could sum up the entire book of First Peter. Believers don't suffer accidentally. It's not a coincidence. It's not fate. Rather, believers suffer According to God's will. That's also theology. My suffering is part of God's will? Yes. If you're suffering as a Christian, yes. Yes, it is, and that should cause us to have great joy. There's meaning. There's purpose. There's value there. And ultimately, it's doing a work in me that is better than I could ever do on my own. This is God at work in me. This, by itself, should be enough. 
to help us commit. That's what this word trust, entrust means, to entrust, to commit, to hand over and place in someone else's care. Peter says, commit yourself to God. But we also have the example of Jesus. Do you know the last words of Jesus that Luke records? Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit, same word, I entrust my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus is our example. Just as Jesus trusted himself to his Father, because he is a faithful, loving Father. We are called to entrust ourselves to our Father, to our Creator, who is all-loving, who is all-faithful, who is all-powerful. Why wouldn't we? Why would we place our souls in anyone else's care other than the one who ordains all things, who controls all things, who knows what is perfect and good and just and right, who is loving and powerful and merciful and gracious? Isn't that who we should commit our souls to? How do we know that we've done it? How do we know that I'm entrusting my soul, that I'm committing my soul to the Lord while doing good? This is not an afterthought, a tag at the end of the sentence. This is the proof. This is the evidence. This is the security that we know that we are truly trusting God, that even in the midst of suffering and trials, we continue to do good. We demonstrate our faith by continuing to do what God has called us to do, no matter what life brings to us. We trust in God. The result here is joy. It sounds deep. It sounds heavy. I sound a little ominous today. But the result of this, if we commit to this, if we knew this, if we believe this, if we put it in our heart and our minds, the result is true, lasting joy that will only be amplified at the return of Jesus when he sets all things right and ends all suffering forevermore. Let's pray. Dear Lord, help us know this truth. Help us apply this truth. Convict us of sin. Help us know. Help us know you more. Help us trust you through trials. Lord, I pray for those that are that are struggling today, that are hurting today, that this sounds like a weight. I pray that you would give them a special sense of your spirit resting on them today. That they might cling to you. That they might trust in you. That they might find the joy that can be found in knowing you no matter what situation is happening in their life. We pray these things in your name. Amen.